Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Don Berry is the president and co-founder of Luna PBC, which is the public benefit corporation that launched Luna DNA the first DNA and health research platform owned by its community of Dana donors. Previously, Don joined Illumina in 2005 and served as the vice president of applied genomics. In this role, she accelerated the application of genomics in medicine and personal healthcare through integration of market development strategies with product and business model innovation. Prior to Illumina, Don worked at Genesons Pharmaceuticals, one of the first genomic startups focused on personalized medicine. She holds a BS in biology from the University of Vermont, and an MBA from the University of Connecticut School of Business. Thank you so much for for hopping on this call on a Saturday. I'm excited to learn more about the work that, about your background and also the work that you've been doing at at Luna. So I guess we can start from the beginning. Could you tell us a little bit more about your upbringing and how you got interested in the sciences? Yeah, I'm from central Connecticut. My, you know, my upbringing was very, um, very simple. My family didn't have a lot of money. My mom left work to raise the kids. And, you know, even as a a young kid, I was always really interested in nature and animals and gardens. So at a young age, I I developed kind of affinity for, for kind of life science and science in general. And my parents did a great job cultivating that. I, I had a, a big yard with, and, and lots of pets, and like I said, gardens. So, um, you know, with that, with that knowledge and that that sort of interest, I ended up going to uh, University of Vermont. It felt like a good college to study kind of the natural world. I ended up focusing more on on genetics, um, largely because as I, I got through my my college degree, you know, my passion was really starting to figure out like how could we get everybody a clean bill of health? And you as a medical student, I'm sure are very passionate about that. I believe everybody deserves a clean bill of health and, and health is an individualized state. Everybody you know, feels a different definition of what healthy is to them. But then genetics, you know, we're, we're talking early 2000s, felt like a good place to start because you know, what's more personal than, than your genome? So I, I really got attracted to genetics and ended up going um, firstly, you know, right out of college to a, a lab at Yale for about a year and a half studied genetics. And then from there, went to a startup, um, another small company called Illumina, and then ended up starting my <laughs> own company. So it's, it was, I always knew I wanted to be in a STEM field and I always knew I wanted to work towards making people healthier because my, my parents also didn't sort of necessarily enjoy a good bill of health. So that's really, really what I'm passionate about. And I love intersecting science and business to get those innovations, you know, ultimately to the bedside and affecting people's lives. 100%. I love how you said Illumina, a little company called Illumina. It was little we'll, at the time. We'll, it was little at the time. And we'll, we'll talk about that later, yeah. um, how this little company is now, you know, the human that it is. But so early on, you said that you joined a startup. Is this, and is this startup Genesons? Yeah. So Genesons, okay. this is, so I was, as I mentioned, I was at a lab in Yale doing genetics, I, I, maybe that's a, a, a little more than it was, you know, I didn't have a PhD. So I was largely looking through a microscope all day and, and sort of documenting where different proteins were, were localizing, etc. So, so it wasn't, wasn't really science, but 
but what ended up happening is a, a startup company was very interested in um, a particular technology that the lab was working on. So I joined Genesance Pharmaceuticals as employee 13. They were just right down the street in New Haven, Connecticut. And what was really fascinating to me about that company was, you know, firstly, they were, I know this sounds silly now, but, you know, at the time, again, we're early 2000s, they were saying, you know, look, people respond differently to different medications. Could this be their genetics? And, mm. you know, of course, we've come to realize that yeah, that probably has a lot to do with that. Right. But also more specifically, um, started focusing on um, people's, you know, absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion of, of drugs, and really un understanding the genetic underpinnings of that. So the, the company had a, you know, a great research vision to really stratify patient populations to figure out which, you know, drug in a class of drugs would be best for people. But then in the near term, you know, my job was largely selling, um, there were pharmacogenomics tests, so the tests that, that determine how different people respond to different medications and selling that um, in different clinical trial settings, different research settings. So this was really starting to marry that my passion for genetics and human health and getting to that individualized state of, of health and well-being. And so you were there for eight years. So yes. how did your role evolve at, at this company in those eight years? Yeah, so as I said, I, I was employee 13. I was in the lab because of the, um, the, uh, the synergy with what I was working on at Yale. And after, I think it was probably about three years, I, I felt, you know, I felt like it wasn't doing science, you know, at that time, you're kind of putting solution A and B together, shake it, and then sort of mm -hmm. see what happens, you know, collagen kits, those type of things, because, you know, we should make those kits super easy to use. But I, I felt, I felt like a, a bit like I was hitting the road and I felt that my talent would be better served in figuring out how we were going to get this science to the bedside. So, so after, like I said, about three years in the lab, I decided to go over to the business side of the company and say, you know, I, I really want to work on the business side. I'll, I'll do anything, right? I'll, I'll set appointments. I'll do PowerPoint decks. I'll get new, um, you know, new introductions on the calendar, you know, whatever it takes. I just want to start working on the business side because I, I felt that that would suit my, my personality better. And, um, you know, luckily they, they took me up on that offer that was um, in, in the business development group and in a small company. Again, you end up doing everything, but that was my first foray into the into the business side, and and it was it was good because I could speak the science and lean into the business, and then I would ultimately go on to get an MBA. So I really solidified that toolkit mm -hmm. on on the business side, and then worked again more broadly in sales and different business units, et cetera. Got it. And what was that shift like for you? It was you know it was it was really exciting. Um, I was ill prepared for it, right? So just coming with just lab experience, jumping into business development, but isn't isn't that the greatest opportunity for growth? So I was super excited. Um, again, I, I think getting my MBA while I was working was really valuable. It was it was bonkers in terms of a schedule, but being able to do the job and then do the coursework and bring it back into the job and and that nice cycle of reinforcement while you're you're doing your degree that was extremely helpful and I think accelerated you know the impact. But I would say, you know, there there were some interesting stories along the way. Just in a biotech company, in in those early years, um, being one of few females in in the department, there were definitely some, you know, interesting times that I've since grown and learned from. And you know, as a as a person who now employs folks, make sure we don't repeat some of those environments again. <laughs>
Let's talk yeah. about your time at Illumina. So you joined in around 2005, is Correct. that right? Okay. Yeah, there was about, about 300 people. The majority were kind of R&D. At the time, really didn't have um, a lot of sh sort of shippable products to speak of. We were operating um, kind of an in-house service as well as some big installations of lab. But it was really the early days of thinking about, you know, genetic testing, like large scale genetic testing at scale and imagining that you could do something like that in your own lab. So it was a very, very exciting time um, in genetics, you know, kind of just after the human genome project and thinking mm -hmm. about how do we manifest all the promise that we heard from that project. So it's a, a super exciting time. And what was your role at Illumina at the time that you joined? Yeah, I was a sales, I was a salesperson. Um, it's a very, very small sales team. I think there were maybe five or six of us at the time. Wow. What I was leveraging from the startup, as I mentioned, um, at the startup, I was working in pharmacogenomics and selling services to pharma. Now at Illumina, the goal was to sell, you know, genetic testing technology to the pharmaceutical companies. So another company, Affymetrix, had really locked up pharma, whereas Illumina kind of locked up the academics. And then each company was trying to get each other's share. So, so my job was specifically as a salesperson to focus on getting Illumina technology uh, into the pharmaceutical testing space. And what was your strategy in order to do that? Because clearly you and your team laid the foundation for <laughs> where Illumina is today um, in literally every single lab. In those early days, um, we really, really had to sell the science mm -hmm. because you're, you're still an unproven um, technology, this idea of doing genetics at scale is still new. So, you know, once you're established, the strategy is usually leverage relationships and case studies and everything. But in those early days, the cell was very high science. And so we led specifically with the quality of the product, the quality mm -hmm. at a good price point. We always used to say we don't sell the cheapest product, we sell the best product. So it was all about high science. It was all about quality. It was about ease of workflow, reproducibility, et cetera, but all under this umbrella of a very high quality product. And that's what all of us kind of put in our bags and, and we're out selling. And we, at that time too, had a lot of PhDs who were on the sales team. And how long were you at Luna for? Uh, 2005 to 2018, so about 12 years. Oh, wow. okay. Yeah, long time. Yeah, it was a, a, just a tremendous, it was a tremendous time. It was a tremendous company. It was a, a remarkable opportunity. So I started, as I mentioned, in um, targeting sales into the, the pharmaceutical space. And then what, what was incredible was almost every two years, I got to explore a new opportunity for the technology. And I think, you know, cause we're talking about entrepreneurship today, mm -hmm. this, this willingness to sort of take a blank piece of paper and see where we can go next, see what we can expand. And so after two years of the pharma focus, um, we said, you know, this technology could really be used in um, a field called agrogenomics. So it's a fancy word for using genetic testing in crop and livestock to optimize um, breeding so that you have better yield, the crops can grow in, in harsher conditions, et cetera, even, even the nutritional content. So um, started to think about what would it take to take the technology we have and, and, and evolve it so it fit that space. And that was, it became a, a tremendous business for Illumina. And then from there, again, almost two years later, 
the thinking was, can we take this technology and think about it in a diagnostic capacity? Mm. And then, you know, markets started to grow from there. The direct-to-consumer DNA testing market started to take off, transplant diagnostics, even public safety and, and forensics, identity um, mm -hmm. testing. So the, the, the fan of opportunities just started to um, just completely explode. And I, I still think we're at the tip of the iceberg, but that was my, my team's job was to figure out new ways for the product to meet different markets, different configuration of the products to do that, which is, I mean, that's kind of a dream job. That's super cool. It really is. Now that you're describing it to me, thinking about basically all the different applications, and yeah. you have to be very forward thinking too. You have to think about what is an application that other people have not thought about. Yes. And I need to convince this person that this is something that you need. You might not have thought of it now, but you're going to need it in the future. And it's kind of like how Apple got things started yeah. with like the iPhone, anticipating everything that oh. you yeah. would need. It, it was day. <laughs> so fun. And I think, you know, you know, for your listeners, what was super important is there, there's some companies where unfortunately taking risks is not, not often rewarded. And I felt like in this company, as long as we were super informed and thoughtful about the business thesis going into these different markets, and as long as we were measuring along the way, how was the response? How is our fit? How are we doing? How much are we spending? How much are we earning? You know, that type of entrepreneurial spirit inside a company is awesome. You know, if you have a culture that understands that some ideas are not going to work. And that's just fine. That is just fine. So now we're in 2018. Yep. And this is when you co-founded your company, Luna DNA. So could you tell us a little bit more about the company's mission, what you guys are doing, what motivated you to really start this company? We'll start with, I guess, motivation first. You know, after so many years of of making DNA data generation, you know, cheaper, faster, better, and and within that, also higher quality. That that part of the story always gets missed. It, it you know, the the breaking of Moore's law plus no sacrifice in quality was really really tremendous. So, after lots of years of of pursuing that, I I want to see people have better health from technology. There there was a feeling that. Okay, DNA data, quite accessible now. Electronic health records, okay, they're, they're out there. They're, they're all kinds of locked up and not interoperable. But we, we have that data that we always said, if we could just have a ton of DNA data or EHRs, mm -hmm. boy, we will cure cancer and everything else will happen. And the truth of the matter is, it's not that easy. A few of us were thinking about this idea for a long time. Could we think about better health through better science to really change how science gets done and operate from this, this perspective of bringing together, of course, the DNA data and other omics, of course, the clinical medical data, but all the good stuff that's so obvious now as we look back on COVID, the patient reported outcomes, the real world data, the lived experience. What about the desires of people? What, what are your biggest priorities, needs, wants, hurdles in life? What if we really started with people and started from what they need and want to live a healthier life. And then from there say, can we gather data properly? So there's all kinds of other things happening in the universe with GDPR and distrust and everything. And we can talk about it if you want to, but if, if we can gather data properly for people and in a way that suits the way researchers need it, aggregate it, organize it, structure it, make it research ready. 
can we bring together data at scale to solve problems? Lots of research problems, not just for patient, patient networks, but for quality of life, for performance, for aesthetics, for any issue that a community wants to solve. So thinking about the inverse, research is done because a researcher has a question and then they pursue a grant and then they go gather a cohort of people and we take specimens and we ask a few questions. We kind of keep our fingers crossed that we've got enough to answer that question. And then sometimes it publishes, sometimes it doesn't. And, and it can be that's the end of that. And that's a very inefficient use of data. So we kind of think of it less as data bases and more as data streams continuously coming from people who decide which kind of research is important to them and, and what they want to pursue and participate in by kind of donating their digital bodies mm. you know, to these science projects, but in a way that doesn't take away their choice. Meaning if you don't want to share your data anymore, or if you don't want your data in that kind of study, that's your choice. So, I mean, it's fundamental rules of fairness with people, thinking about communities as the structures that allow them to come together to support each other in a research sense, almost phenotype better, but then allow them to bridge with researchers so researchers can come and work with them versus researchers working on them. That's amazing. I love, I love that approach to helping facilitate research and make it more efficient in that way and to kind of make it more transparent. Yeah, and if, and if we don't have people, you know, as part of the research equation, we don't have research. And also another thing that I think it's come up in the news a lot as well with regards to research is just the lack of diversity that's in clinical research. And so it stems from a sense of distrust because there isn't this transparency because they just you know don't know how how is my body being used for for research. Like I don't know, so I can't trust, so I'm not gonna volunteer. Is so true. And I like to say it's an earned mistrust. I mean, these these studies that were done were done, you know, in a in a very deceptive bait and switch kind of manner. And when you there is an earned mistrust because there there were bad things being done. And we've got to obviously earn that trust back. But I think it's it's not about saying you need to trust me. It's about operating in a trustworthy manner. I don't want to put the work to you to trust me. I want to operate tr in a trustworthy manner. And for us, that means, again, these are very simple concepts. They're more difficult to operationalize in a system, but we've, we've built the system with privacy by design from the ground up. But it's, it's really simple. And these are the themes that, that GDPR and other consumer privacy laws are saying, which is, it should be very clear, you know, in the consent, what your data is being used for. Mm -hmm. You should control its inclusion you should have privacy protections. You should know where your data is being stored and who's using it and the ability to delete it if you wish to. Like that sounds pretty basic to me. It does, <laughs> <And it's>, yeah. <laughs> right? So, and that's that's what, you know, we've always felt, but now these consumer privacy laws are, are really pushing for, for that to happen. Can you talk a little bit more about what Luna DNA's offering is? Sure. The offering is specifically the ability for communities. And we have been largely focusing on patient networks, but as I mentioned, they're, they're, they're all kinds of collectives. They're communities of faith, they're geographic communities, they're special interest groups. But like I said, our first focus has been on patient networks because there's such a high unmet need for proper data stewardship and linking up with research. So Luna is a place where communities can come together, bring their people, 
share data, deploy systems to aggregate that data. So survey systems, connect electronic health records, upload DNA files, think about wearable sensors, monitors, et cetera, bring that data together in a way that's ready for research. It's permissioned properly, it's harmonized properly, it's consented properly, the system does all of this. And then invite researchers. So sometimes communities come together and they do their own research because also on the platform is a discovery environment where all the data is ready with preloaded tools to start looking at correlations, um, do visualization of the data, produce insights, infographics, et cetera. So sometimes communities already have a researcher that they want to work with. Sometimes researchers say, can we bring together a community like this? And other times communities just know that they want to get their data together so that it can be stronger advocates for their needs, wants, desires, et cetera. So it's a place for communities to come together, gather data and work with researchers. Now, in terms of a business model, can, sure. you, can you describe that a little bit more yeah. and how so you came to it? Yeah, it's a, it's a, so it's a, Luna is a, a technology platform doing all the things um, that I said. The, the business model, specifically the services we offer, so we're a services company, are typically in the areas of, of organizing a community. So, so any kind of work we need to do with patient advocacy groups, outreach, messaging, et cetera, bring a community together. So that's service one. Um, service two is um, leveraging all the pipes and portals and infrastructure to bring the data together from that um, group of individuals. So as I mentioned, the electronic health records, there's a wonderful library of surveys in the platform, validated instruments, all the way to being able to do bespoke instruments. So this gathering of data, and then three, the research environment to study that data, to use the tools that are already there that are very easy to use. We wanna get past people feeling like they need a PhD to do research. No, mm -hmm. the data is taken care of. The tools are here, just bring questions to the data. And we've got a lot of advocacy groups that are busy doing their own research, which is tremendous. But the, the last service is, is that, that study environment where, again, we've managed consent, privacy, storage, security, all that good stuff. So researchers can just come to the data and start chunking and hoping, finding answers. But then lastly, it's not a one and done system. So the data stays with the community, it stays with the people and it keeps getting richer and richer and richer. So this is kind of this continuous learning environment around research versus I gather data for one question and the data just goes away. No, it stays with people, it stays with communities, it gets more valuable and richer and more informative over time. And throughout this entire process, the, the person that has you know, donated this data, so to speak, is aware of how it's being used, where, and all of that. Absolutely. So not only aware but they've shared a single copy of their data we'd like to say they keep a string on their data the data stays in the platform and research come to it so they're not only aware they're maintaining control they're preserving their privacy and they're also ensuring their choice meaning if they don't like the platform i do something stupid or you know they just they're just not into this anymore they can change their mind and and shut down their account and in doing so their data goes with them they can literally download, take it with them, shut down. And that's the kind of choice that I think is incredibly empowering for people, gives, gives them that trust, um, but also is compliant with GDPR and other consumer privacy laws. So you, you kind of got to do it that way, but it mm -hmm. is the best thing for people to leave the choice with them on how their data is used. And so for, for our listeners, GDPR is, is the 
Europe's general data protection regulation. So yes. that and there's California's Consumer Privacy Act. So there's there's been a lot of momentum and discussion yeah. around around consumer privacy laws. And you know, Luna DNA is doing a great job in terms of protecting that. So now looking to the future, what do you think the future of data sharing will look like? in the next, you know, 10, 20 years. Absolutely. And and just a comment on the consumer privacy laws. You mentioned too, Mm -hmm. there are a patchwork of privacy laws all over the world that you've got to, and I think Europe led the way, California fast followed and is kind of guiding the US on what we're doing. You need data to come together at scale to do proper research. And that means, in my opinion, especially in rare diseases operating internationally. So these privacy rules, they, they really, you know, for anybody doing research, they, they really have to be paid attention to because every country has different approaches to how consumer data um, is to be managed. And with our platform, we're, we're saying, we'll bear the burden of the consent and the privacy security, et cetera, so researchers don't have to know what's going on in every single country. But the future, you know, if we follow these laws and, and sort of this consumer empowerment that's, that's obviously happening, you know, the, the future to me is going to be consent is going to be clear. So, you know, if you do a DNA test or whether it's in a clinic or, or from your from your couch, because a lot of stuff comes to your home now, how your data is being used cannot be buried on page 72 of 120 page, you know, terms of use and everything else. It's going to have to be much, much clearer um, so that you're truly informed in that consent and not just ticking a tick box. So we'll see clear um, consent. Research will come to your data. Your data in the future, I don't think is gonna be propagated all over the place so that you ultimately, you, know, you lose control of it and ultimately don't know who's got your data, how it's being stored and how it's being used. So we'll see more and more models where research is coming to your data. I think, it, I hope it'll be easier to participate in science. I think it is getting easier and that's everything from If you join a clinical trial, perhaps having that trial come to your home versus you having to, you know, march to a clinical site. And and worse than that, you know, sick kids having to get on planes to go to the one site in the United States that's studying, you know, whatever, pediatric epilepsy. So it's going to get easier, I hope, in the future um, to participate in science. And I would say, lastly, we've got to ask people what they want, what researchers should be prioritizing you know, solve problems based on what the patients want to solve. And one example of this is the women's study that we have going on in the platform right now. And the, the thesis was that perhaps what's being funded in women's health research is going to be different than what women really want. And so we, you know, imagine that went out to women. It was open to any women to say, you know, what are your priorities in women's health research? And they are different. They are different than what is being funded and unfortunately, what is being funded is a, lot, is, is a lot around how are men different than women? No, how, let's study women, not, not, not just how we're different. Let's, let's study women's health. Let's study healthy pregnancy. Let's study more than women's reproductive abilities. Let's think about mental health. So these type of things are surfacing as priorities, but they're not being funded. And so that's what I mean by, I hope the future of research and data sharing is based on stuff that's truly important to me and my definition of health and well-being. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
an interesting structure with regards to learning DNA is that those that participate that are giving their data, they have like a share of the, sure. of the company. How, how does that work? Yeah, and building the company, you know, we really wanted to take this opportunity to think about why people weren't participating in research. And what we found was there were issues of transparency, oversight, and, and sharing in the value created. And, and this came a little bit from, you know, research into folks who had done, you know, direct to consumer DNA tests and other, you know, understudied populations because of the earned mistrust. So we had said, okay, how, how can we fix that? And so what we, what we did was in leveraging, you know, kind of a small company going public, we approached the Securities and Exchange Commission. And we said, look, data, data has value. And we want to treat it as currency by which to acquire shares of ownership in this platform company. So pursuing it very much in a cooperative model, recognizing when this platform really, you know, gets going and the business gets big, we should share that because it only is possible if people come together into it. So the SEC qualified us, which means um, when people share data, they have the option. If they don't want to do this, they, they don't have to, but they have the option to take shares of ownership in the platform. The ownership shares, you know, confer a, a certain percentage ownership, and when value is created, that value is shared with them. So it's very, mm. it's leveraging a very traditional model of of share ownership, but using the innovation here is using data instead of dollars to acquire that that ownership. I love that. I've never heard of of this structure of this kind of structure adopted before, but I think it's great to to that sense of creating that sense of ownership. Do you have any advice you would like to share with our listeners that are thinking about embarking on this journey as an entrepreneur in, in healthcare? Pursue something you are deeply invested in, that you deeply believe in, because it's a challenging road. And the challenge is not the reason not to do it, right? The challenge is the reason to do it. If it was easy, someone would have done it already. So you're, you're leaning into you know, a road that there's an opportunity, there's something that needs to be fixed. And as I mentioned, it, it is it is all encompassing. It's it's a tough job, but it's it's a noble cause. So go into it with your heart, with your intellect, you know, with your gut, because there's a lot of gut instinct that goes into it. But come into it, you know, come into it fully as a person, and then bring in people who you trust to to to, to have that same mindset um, about the business. So it's. It's all about those early people being on the same journey with you, with the same goals in mind, with the same values, um, et cetera. And then when you, when you get started, you won't get it right the first time. That is not the point. The point is to get something out there you know, with, with your assumptions, get it out there and then learn from it being out there and bring those learnings back in, push it out again, bring the learnings back in. Don't wait to get it perfectly right the first time because it won't be maybe there's you know folks out there that, that will get it right the first time but the majority of the time it's going to take some some optimizing to get there and you know you got to have a little bit of a thick skin as well because you're going to have investors who love you and then investors that think you're stupid so there's there's a lot of um there's just a, it's a very dynamic environment and then surround yourself with good people that believe in what you're doing because that that's your buffer that's your lift that's the wind you know sometimes that you need between your your wings but but just go for it too. There's no perfect time to go for it, but just go for it. Make sure you have a good network that you can go and test your ideas and test your pitches with 
And the best friends are the ones, not that like, you're awesome, it's great. The best friends are being like, I totally didn't understand what you were saying right there. So find those people who are smart, but also will tell you like it is. So you can kind of sweat in the times of peace versus bleed in the times of war when you're out there in the field or out there selling it. That's my advice. But it's, you got one go around on this planet. If you believe in something, just go for it. There's so many opportunities. Thank you so much, Don. That was, that's some great advice that I personally will take because I right. <laughs> work in, in medicine and also as, you know, an aspiring physician entrepreneur, this is something that I will, I will, that will certainly help me having that mentality. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing producer, Sarah Wetzler, and audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jain, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting Thea by visiting our website, thehc.org to donate.